Palm Sunday often kind of just gets overshadowed, right, by Easter, and rightly so, yet we want to pause and think about the events that were leading up to Easter Sunday, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that's namely his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I'm actually not going to be talking much about palm branches or robes or donkeys. We're really going to focus on Christ's demonstrated purpose. What was the point of him entering into Jerusalem? And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. This actually works really well in our study of Mark. It's good timing. Um, Pastor Eric just recently looked over the question, who do people say that I am? And the answer was, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then last week we talked a little bit about how Jesus taught his disciples that he must die. And so this week we're going to jump right into the triumphal entry. And we're going to read out of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11 says this. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Before we jump into the context of this, let me just pause and ask God just to bless our hearing of his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word, for the illumination of your Holy Spirit. I thank you that we're not relying on my ability to communicate this, but that you are at work. And I pray that you would soften hearts, open ears and minds and hearts to receive your word. May it produce change in our lives. I pray that we would see you this morning as our king, as our Passover lamb, as our Messiah appointed for a purpose. And as we look at the way Jesus Christ demonstrated that purpose, may we follow his example in humility, being subject to the will of the Father. May we learn to do so in our own lives. And I pray all these things in your name. Amen. So Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel is to present Jesus to the Jewish people as their sovereign king. From Jesus' genealogy, his birth, visit of the wise men, the quoted prophecies, baptism, teachings, miracles, Matthew documents Christ's claim to be the Messiah King. The events leading up to his death 
are no different. When we look at this Passion Week, Christ's demonstrated purpose was to do the will of the Father and to fulfill the Old Testament messianic prophecies, which included suffering. We're going to see here that this was not what the people wanted to hear. It's not what they expected. The time is the week of Passover. So just to recap, Passover was that special time of year when the Jews remembered how God protected them from death and set them free from slavery in Egypt. God had said that the oldest child in every family would die, but he made a way for the Israelites to escape death. They would need to kill a lamb. They would need to place the blood of that lamb on their doorpost. In this way, the angel of the Lord would pass over those with blood on their doorpost. The blood protected the Israelites from death. And so now in our passage, the crowds gathered in Jerusalem in order to celebrate this Passover. Travelers would pass the villages of Bethany and Bethphage. They, many of them spent the night on the outskirts of Jerusalem because there was no room in Jerusalem. Pilgrims from all over the country made this long journey on the Roman road and they joined tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of lambs being brought in to be slaughtered at the temple. The first century historian Josephus claimed over 256,000 lambs one year were killed, slaughtered, for perhaps 3 million people who had converged on Jerusalem. There are other estimates, more conservative estimates. The point is there was a lot of people coming to celebrate Passover. There was a buzz, a bustle. I don't know if we can even imagine what this was like. Maybe Walmart during Christmas? Um, we can't imagine what this was like. And I think back at my experiences, and I don't know if you've ever been in an open meat market. Here in the States, they're probably different, but if you've been to a foreign country and they actually bring the animals live to the market, it might have been a little bit like that. A few years back, my wife and I had the privilege of going to Ethiopia, where we met our beautiful daughter, Mertenesh. And we were there Easter weekend, and it had this feel. There were herds of sheep up and down the roads, in the alleys. There were crowds everywhere, and there was just this buzz celebrating Easter. But it wasn't Palm Sunday, it was Good Friday. And so not only were there sheep, there were people, there was blood. There was slaughter. And so blood ran in the streets. And I think that might be the closest picture I have of what might have happened here in Jerusalem. Sheep were being led into Jerusalem to the temple courts. The people did not realize, though, that that year they would also see the Passover lamb enter into the city in order to shed his blood on the cross to pay for all sin and satisfy the wrath of God. Another point is that the Hebrew people were awaiting the promised Messiah, some more faithful than others. Think about Simeon and Anna in the temple courts. Simeon prayed, now that I have held him in my arms, my life can come to an end. He said, let your servant now depart in peace. I've seen your salvation, the light of the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. The word Messiah means anointed one or commissioned one for a specific purpose. In Greek, it's the Christ. We've heard this. And so Israel is thinking 
and waiting for this promised Messiah. They had experienced the suffering through division of their nation, exile, a complete loss of their nationality. And so because of their need, they were anticipating a coming king who would set up among the Hebrew people a kingdom based in Jerusalem like King David. This Messiah they expected would deliver them from the threatening world powers and provide political stability and prosperity. Who wouldn't want that, right? That's the kind of king I would want. This king would restore their nationality. And then especially after the division of the kingdom, people came to believe that this salvation would come through a strong political leader, a king. The prophecies of the suffering servant were overlooked or not associated with the Messiah. They didn't have a clear picture of who their Messiah was. They had misguided expectations. And so Christ's demonstrated purpose here was to enter Jerusalem as king, unlike any other king, giving his life as a ransom for many as a Passover lamb. So Jesus' life and death, this is our first point here, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. His life and death followed a definite plan. We see this throughout Christ's life, right? He talks about doing the will of the Father. So he had the Father's plan, but he also was on board with this plan, and he specifically took steps to make this plan happen. We see in verses 1 through 3, when they drew near to Jerusalem, he's going to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen. The disciples are fearful knowing what's going to happen. And they came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you will say the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So there's definite plan, definite purpose. There is knowledge of what will happen. So in the details, but also in what his purpose for being in Jerusalem is, this was the will of God. And we see that Jesus willingly followed God's plan for his life and sovereignly orchestrated the events leading even to his death. In other words, Jesus recognized the will of God and was delivered, we read in Acts 2, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Not only was it God's plan, but it was Jesus' plan as he submitted to the will of the Father. And here in this passage, he is demonstrating, illustrating himself as sovereign master. Now we need to understand this. He was not a hapless victim of circumstances. Jesus actually directed the events leading to his death. Deliberate participation, even orchestration of these events. And so he shows his sovereign mastery in the setting into motion of these events. He shows that he is in control and willingly chooses to go to the cross in this specific manner to fulfill messianic prophecies. Okay, Jesus didn't arrive at Jerusalem and say, all right, what's next? We need to find a place to stay. Um, we need to find a mode of transportation. Um, disciples, try to, try to find those things. He knew what was going to happen, and he sent his disciples because he knew that they would find the donkey and that that donkey would be 
sent. The disciples found everything, just as he had told them. He's not, Jesus is not caught off guard or surprised by how the events transpire. Um, he didn't get carried away by a mob later on. Um, we see that earlier in their journey down from Galilee, Jesus had pulled the disciples aside. We talked about this last week. And the third time, for three, three different times, he says to his disciples, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, they will spit on him, flog him, and kill him. After three days, he will rise. So Jesus, you could say, provoked the events. James Montgomery Boy speaks of Christ's last week of ministry and his passion. He says these are climactic events, not only of the life of Jesus, but of all history. They were planned from the, before the foundations of the world, and our salvation from sin and wrath depends on them. It's difficult for us to overemphasize or overstate the importance of these events that Jesus was bringing about. See, there's the will of the crowd, there's the will of Jesus, the will of God, and yet we see that the will of Jesus was to do the will of God. And John 4, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 5, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, for I have come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. How easy is it for you to do someone else's will? This irks me sometimes. I have to admit I have a problem with this. I like my freedom, right? We like our freedom. And when someone places a demand on you or an expectation not easy for us to humbly have to inconvenience ourselves for someone else, is it? And we see that Christ was setting an example for us as he submitted to the will of God. But was the will of God set? In Isaiah 46, we, hear, we read about the sovereignty of God. He says, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. What I have said that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. And so you see, Jesus and the Father are together in this plan and doing this will. He has complete authority. All things are under his control. He's never surprised, never frustrated, never uncertain about events. He does what he pleases, and rightly so. He is God. And so when we look at this, and we see that the crowds, they're wanting... You see, earlier in his life, they wanted Jesus as king. They would have made him king, right? That is the will of the crowds. And yet, the will of God was that Jesus would die. And these wills, this is an interesting study just in and of itself, understanding the will of God and how that works. Um, you could say there are two aspects to his will. Howard Marshall, a um, commentator, says, we must distinguish between what God would like to see happen and what he actually does will to happen. Both of these can be spoken of as God's will. So there is what we, we can think about it in our terms, as parents, let's say. As parents, we would like to see our children happy, right? And so we would like to see this happen that our, parents, that our children experience joy. 
So we desire that for our children, and yet we will to happen chores, school, dentist visits, right? That is what we will to happen for their good. And so we see the will of God being accomplished by Jesus Christ because that is for his glory and our good. So Jesus knew the Father's definite plan, and he willingly submitted to actively carrying it out. Jesus followed God's definite plan, and he purposed to fulfill the prophecies of the Messiah. That's point number two, the fulfilled prophecy, verses four through five. He's entering into Jerusalem, and he's not there yet. He's given instructions to his disciples, showing his divine sovereignty, his mastery, his control of the situation. And all this was done, it says in verse 4, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Matthew quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, here in this passage, ascribing it to Jesus as the Messiah. So Jesus intentionally fulfilled the Old Testament messianic prophecies as king of Israel. And in Matthew alone, we read about that little phrase, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet multiple times throughout Jesus' life. His birth, his calling out of Egypt, his move to Nazareth, his Galilean ministry, his healing of the sick, his messianic secret, or commanding his disciples and those he had healed to not tell anyone about him. These are things that Matthew alone talks about as being fulfilling of prophecy. And so Jesus fulfilled the prophecy as king, but also as Messiah. And we're going to see this in Zechariah chapter 9. He enters into Jerusalem with what we would call a royal intent. In other words, his purpose, his intent, was to proclaim himself as king. Riding into Jerusalem, according to the Messianic prophecies, was a clear claim to his royal rights as a spirit-anointed, as the spirit-anointed king of Israel. Jesus intended to enter Jerusalem as the rightful king of Israel, and his purpose was to fulfill that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. Can you imagine living your life with that purpose. At one point earlier in his ministry, the crowds wanted to forcefully make him king, and he avoided them. It was not the Father's will at that time, and it was not fulfillment of prophecy, and he would not allow it. He also fulfilled messianic prophecy, making messianic claims. Again, we've seen Messiah. The term Messiah means anointed one, we can see it as one authorized or set apart for a particular service. It came from Old Testament anointing of prophets, priests, or kings. And the Abrahamic covenant promised that in his descendants all the world would be blessed. And so the people were awaiting this Messiah. And it created an expectation of an anointed one, or one who would begin a universal, eternal reign of peace. And throughout the Old Testament, the prophecies spoke of salvation that were, and those that were interpreted were interpreted as political rescue. But others spoke of suffering. And so we're going to look at that a little bit. Suffering and death. How do, we, how do we understand these prophecies? And why is it that they were separated? Why is it that they weren't seen as 
king and Messiah together, suffering and reigning. They were clear about his virgin birth, being born in Bethlehem, being a descendant of the house of David, that he would be a man of sorrows, rejected by his people, betrayed by his friends, crucified between two thieves, raised from the dead, seated in authority, and returning once again. And we can tell that the people understood who Jesus was because throughout Christ's life, he had been called the son of David. This is kingly and messianic. It's a title used of Jesus as part of the Davidic line, as well as the Christ, the Messiah. In Matthew 1, Jesus is introduced as the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so the people understood this. Religious rulers actually acknowledged that the Christ was the son of David. And on multiple occasions, Jesus was addressed as the son of David. The two blind men of Matthew 20, the crowds of Matthew 12, after healing the demonic or the demon-possessed, blind, and mute man. The Canaanite woman begging for her daughter, who was demon-possessed in Matthew 15. So the people had made this connection between Jesus as Christ and King. And now Jesus made his claim as the Messianic King of Israel by fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy of riding into Jerusalem, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, so not only does he follow Christ or God's plan, fulfills prophecies of the Messiah, he wants to visually demonstrate his claim to the people of Jerusalem so that they would draw their own conclusions as well. So he is fulfilling prophecy, but he's also illustrating, or in a sense, he's putting on a drama or an explicit picture. That's what we want to look at in our third point here, through Really, what I took was, what would the people have seen? They would have seen Jesus riding on that donkey, and they would have had a response. There would have been familiarity. They would have, in their minds, had a picture. And so Jesus illustrated symbolically for the people a vivid picture of himself as their Savior King. The messianic secret was no longer a secret. During his early ministry, Jesus had strictly warned his disciples that they should tell no one about him. And he did this because the people were not ready to understand that his purpose was to die on the cross for sin. But we see, and we talked about this last week, from in Matthew, Matthew 16, to Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem and even into the triumphal entry, we see this break from Jesus' practice of avoiding public declarations of his identity as the Messiah. Everything suddenly has changed. Jesus is now deliberately and publicly claiming to be the promised king of Israel. Never so much as in this public illustration of himself as he enters Jerusalem. He backs up his teaching with a vivid illustration. So Jesus identifies himself as the one prophesied in Zechariah 9, 9. Verses 5 through 9 say, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded, and they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. So Jesus is now entering Jerusalem on this colt. And the people are watching. Imagine now, 
crowds of pilgrims, Jews from all over the country are entering into the gate. Shepherds are bringing their sheep into the gate. And they see Jesus riding on a donkey. Most of the time, in fact, we see this throughout Jesus' life, they walked everywhere, right? So this would have been different. This would have stood out a little bit. Jesus riding on a donkey. And so in their minds, these people would have identified him, Jesus, as a king entering into Jerusalem. Zechariah 9 is perhaps one of the most familiar messianic prophecies because of this reference, as well as in John. It's a vivid, clear, distinct picture. They speak of the coming Messiah and give a unique picture of the Messiah's character and the characteristics of his kingdom. So the people would have recognized this. As we see this, we kind of get a picture of his character and his kingdom as a peaceful king, an omniscient king, prophesied king. And then in Zechariah, we see him as the coming king, as Israel's or your king. He is described as a righteous king, just, acting according to what is right, and as a saving king having salvation, having been vindicated, or meaning he has salvation in his possession and can bestow it on others, the king literally is salvation. He had defeated the power of darkness and victorious over sin. He is salvation to his people. And then he is described as a lowly king, gentle. This was very unexpected. This is not what people saw or wanted in a king. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and give himself or his life as a ransom for many. And this is unlike any worldly king. There's no pageantry, no pomp in his arrival. It's in direct contrast to what the people thought they needed. And so Matthew actually ends this quote in Zechariah 9, verse 9. But verse 10 describes the king's rule as peaceful and universal upon his return. So you could say that the entire church age, or where we are right now, rests between those two verses. So we have the donkey, the crowd see Jesus Christ coming in, claiming to be king, and they take off their coats, they cut palm branches, it says. The point wasn't lost on the crowd. People spontaneously threw their coats on the ground before Jesus to ride over, just as the crowds did when Jehu was anointed king of Israel. They cut palm branches as Jews celebrated at or as Jesus as Jews did at celebrations and festivals. They spread them on Jesus' path, and then we see the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. Verse seven: They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And this is the multitude's response or the crowd's reaction. Verse 8, a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down palm branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. These shouts were from the Egyptian Hallel, or it was a, a 
kind of a collection of psalms and songs that were sung during um, Jewish celebrations. This particular quote, shouting Hosanna to the Son of David, was kind of a greeting that many of the pilgrims actually used on their way to Jerusalem. And so now they are shouting this to Jesus. And they are understanding what this picture means. There's no longer any secret. There's no denial by Jesus. He is making this claim and illustrating it vividly. And he invites the people's praise. However, we're going to look at how the people's praise, what were they thinking when they shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's our fourth point there. The people's response was appropriate, seemingly, but insufficient and imperfect. So why was the people's praise imperfect? Point number four is the imperfect praise. See, the people praised Jesus with the appropriate words, but not an appropriate heart. And we see this only later. In fact, when we read this, don't you kind of think for a while they're, they're doing everything right. Jesus is coming in as king and they recognize the picture he is displaying and demonstrating and they're praising him. I mean, isn't that what we want? The multitudes would have recognized the name of Jesus as the miracle worker who had raised Lazarus from the dead a few miles away at Bethany. This had been well authenticated and accepted by the people as being one of the greatest miracles of all. And so he wasn't an obscure visitor. They knew who he was. He was that rabbi, that teacher from Nazareth. It says earlier about his ministry that as he went about teaching and doing miracles in Mark, immediately his fame spread throughout the region. In Matthew 4, his fame went throughout Syria. In Matthew 9, they spread the news about him in all the country. People knew who Jesus was. And so when they shout, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, they're saying, Jesus is coming in the name of the Lord. He who comes as the Lord's representative, commissioned and sent by the Lord. And so this quote of Psalm 118, they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And and they're saying, this is now in perfect context and used in messianic praise. Be kind of like us, using the phrase, praise God, but speaking directly to God, we would say, I praise you, God. Right? We, we, we see one another and something that is worth celebrating happens and we say, praise God for that. But this is now addressing Jesus Christ and they're saying, Hosanna, save us now. It's no longer just a greeting. It is a song of praise to the Messiah. The people recognized him as king. They would have taken him by force and made him king on their own. We, we remember back in Galilee, he had avoided them knowing that that wasn't the plan. The disciples had recognized him early on as the Messiah. Remember Andrew had announced that he had found the Messiah. Nathaniel proclaimed Jesus as the son of God, the king of Israel. Recently read that Peter had confessed him as the Christ, the son of the living God. 
So although the disciples and the people praised him as king, they did not understand. We actually read that in John's um, narrative of the triumphal entry, that the disciples did not understand what they were doing. They did not praise him, in other words, for who he is. They did not praise him completely from their heart. And so it's insufficient for two reasons here. First, they did not see him as Messiah come as the Passover lamb to die. They saw him as a political leader still, as did the disciples. And then the second reason is they quickly rejected him. We see this, obviously, as the week plays out. It was shallow praise. The words of their praise were appropriate, but their hearts were not. It was noncommittal, conditional. In other words, as long as he met their expectations, they would praise him. In other words, as long as he brought back their nationality, as long as he dealt with their enemies, they asked, how is this salvation to come about? They didn't trust in the Messiah and his purposes. We kind of do that, don't we? Even today. Do we praise Jesus conditionally? Or do we understand who he is? And not just praise him for what he has done for us, but first and foremost for who he is for us. It says in verse 10 and 11, it says that all the city was moved when they had seen this and they saw the praise. They asked, who is this? So the city was agitated, it was stirred, it was moved. The, the, the residents of Jerusalem, they wanted to know who this was who had come in and people were calling the Messiah. Did the people understand that Jesus was the Son of God who had come to die and save them for their sins? No. And they were not praising him as such. So the people praised Jesus as long as he met their expectations. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on this last point. Because our greatest need and Jesus understood this, the people did not. Our greatest need is not freedom to do as we wish, but freedom from the bondage of sin. And that was the demonstrated purpose of Jesus, to free the people from the bondage of sin. See, the people of Jerusalem, and still many of us today, fail to understand his purpose. And rather than humbly submit to his will, we resent him for not meeting our expectations. Ask the question, who is this? Understand who Jesus is. What is God's purpose for you? What is his will? We see this in Christ's example and throughout his life. And, and God's word actually teaches that Christ led an example for us in understanding the will of the Father. He said, Christ laid, laid us an example to, by denying himself, serving others, loving all, freely forgiving Enduring suffering, living sacrificially, being humble. Those are explicitly written for us as examples that Christ left for us. And so this misunderstood purpose as king was the reason the people and the disciples completely missed the point. They didn't understand who he was as king. Even after his resurrection, they asked, will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? <laughs> I mean, they had just seen 
Jesus come in to Jerusalem claiming to be the Messiah. He had clearly explained to them what would happen. They had seen him die on the cross, rise from the dead, and what were they hung up on? Restoring the kingdom of Israel. And I wonder if Jesus just kind of sat down and kind of put his hands in his head like, you missed it. Um, have you ever had that happen where you just kind of have to shake your head? Like, somebody missed the point here. I was looking at uh, a few of these different funny illustrations about people missing the point. It's like CNN's breaking news story that the Titanic sank over 100 years ago. You know, kind of missed that point. It's like having a friend take a selfie of you, like the warning on your treadmill that running is not recommended like the 24-hour protection mouthwash that must be used twice daily, or highlighting your entire document. There's a disconnect there, right? You miss the point. And so the people misunderstood Jesus, but when they actually were clarified about his purpose, they rejected him. And this is where we need to be careful. They were disappointed, disenchanted, thinking they knew what kind of king they needed. They might have asked, what kind of king is this? And it would have been correct question to ask, but then they needed to discover that. Trust it. We need to come and we need to discover what kind of king Jesus is and what kind of kingdom he is offering. We need to trust that it is worth putting aside our own desires. See, the people praised him for what they thought he could do for them. They were inviting Jesus to join their movement to show them what he could do for them to gain their support and favor. It was empty praise, conditional. They were not careful to praise him for who he is. So even today, we hold on to our silly expectations of what we think should make up our lives, right? Regarding the truth of God's word for our lives as his plan and purpose, Can you think of some things in your life that maybe you have just absolutely ignored God's truth, his will? We do this whether it's in a relationship, making a decision about marriage, finances. So often we really push truth aside because we want what we want. And so people misunderstood him as king. They misunderstood his purpose as the Passover lamb. Many of his disciples, it says, were even offended and turned away when he claimed that he must die. Jesus, you see, came to deal with the real need of humanity, the freedom from sin. And we kind of see this picture maybe a little more clearly as he is seen as the Passover lamb. MacArthur kind of helps us understand this a little bit and the symbolism of this. He says... Sacrificial lambs for Passover were being selected on the first month, the 10th day. They kept in the household until the sacrifice on the 14th. In the year Jesus was crucified, the 10th of Nisan was when Jesus entered Jerusalem. If Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly, he was received into the hearts of the Jewish people as a nation, much as a family received the sacrificial lamb into the home. And in so doing, our Lord would have fulfilled the Passover symbolism even in the small detail, being received by his people on the 10th of Nisan, 
continuing that perfect fulfillment, he was then crucified on Friday, the 14th of Nisan, as the true Passover lamb, sacrificed for the sins of the world. Do you recognize Jesus as your Passover lamb? He is set apart for the particular service of suffering and giving his life as a sacrifice. Do you praise him? Think about even this morning. Do you praise him as the lamb who is slain for you? We often thank and praise him for what he has done, and that is appropriate, that is good, but do you praise him for who he is first? Do we give honor to Jesus because he is worthy? It's not wrong to praise him for his work, but it is incomplete. It is right to respond, but it is appropriate to praise him for being worthy. So when the people asked, who is this? All the city was moved, stirred, agitated. Some might have seen him as a fool, some as contemptible. Some were intrigued and wanted a story. Some were envious, some were resentful. And some were moved to rejoice. And I pray this morning that you are not resentful of the way God is leading in your life, that you are obedient, submissive to his will. This is Christ's example. It was his purpose. Submit your life to God's will. Don't stumble at the cross because you're unwilling to acknowledge your sin. See, to close this morning, I want us to think carefully about what happened this morning. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he didn't meet the people's expectations. And Jesus does not always meet our expectations, does he? And this is a good thing. The expectations of the Jew, Jews were not at all unreasonable. It wasn't a bad thing. To have a king, that seemed like a good thing in that sense. Yet they were self-motivated, ignoring the true characteristics of God's kingdom, shaped by the culture and pressures around them. So that when the people realized that the kingdom that Jesus was offering was not the kingdom which the people expected or even wanted, what did they do? They rejected him as their Lord. And what a tragic thing to do. And people are still doing this today. Our desires tempt us to do the things our own way and ignore the obvious truth of his word. We're often willing to disregard and even just push away the warnings of disobedience. We want to press into those consequences no matter what. And we trade God's glory and our own good for our temporal desires. Or we resent God altogether for not giving us what we want. How silly. So whose expectations are you living by? Think about your life. What selfish or rebellious plans and purposes do we need to release in order to submit to God's perfect will? We must not be like the multitudes, the crowds in Jerusalem who shouted praise only as long as Jesus met their expectations as king. Rather, we must recognize our king and Lord and submit to his will, accepting what he has to offer for our lives, just as Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. You see, I think that is Christ's demonstrated purpose for us it was for the people, and they failed to recognize who he was. Let us not do the same thing. Let us recognize that he left us an example. Submit your life 
to God's will.